It's all quiet in the underground bunker. Doors closed, locks bolted. But the great one isn't just resting on his laurels. He's making sure your weekend is even better by giving you his best. This is the best of Mark Levin. I spent a good part of the day watching the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And I want to make several conclusions here. Number one, this young man should never have been charged with murder of any kind. Of any kind. Number two, this young man should never have been charged with anything. I watched this assistant DA who wants to become the elected DA. And he's a disgrace. These charges were leveled against Rittenhouse within 36 or 48 hours of the events. When you're going to charge somebody with murder, you need to have a little bit more time to go through the facts, particularly in this case, where even if you didn't have all the facts, you knew there was the potential for a reasonable self-defense argument. And that's why you take your time. But this is what the mob has done in this country. People are being charged, and they're being charged quickly when they shouldn't be charged quickly, and in some cases shouldn't be charged at all. Kyle Rittenhouse shot three people. The first two died, and the second had his right bicep shot and really turned into dust. In each case, they either assaulted him or were going to assault him. And in the latter case, he had every reason to believe if he didn't shoot, he would be shot. No question about it. And it is amazing to me how the media have turned this on its head as if this young man is guilty. As if he had to be shot in the head. As if he had to be hit again in the head with a skateboard. As if he had to wait to be brutally assaulted in order to defend himself. But that's not the law. It's not the law in Wisconsin. It's not the law anywhere. Not the law anywhere. Now the prosecution committed several unethical acts for which some judges would have held this prosecutor, Thomas Binger, in contempt. Including starting down the road with the jury that Rittenhouse after his arrest, after being charged, chose to be silent and not talk about the case, giving the implication that he must be guilty. And of course, everybody knows you have the right to be silent, and the fact that you're quiet after you're charged is what any lawyer would advise you. So the, the court was furious, and should have been. It was outrageous. And on the second occasion, the prosecutor is trying to bring in really information that's not determinative of anything. 
while you had the gun uh, I- illegally, um, you were running around like you're a superhero, putting out fires with an extinguisher. Uh, you said earlier that if you had your rifle, you would have shot shoplifters. That has nothing to do with what took place in those three shootings. Nothing. And you might say, well, it shows a pattern, a mentality. It shows a pattern of nothing. If, in fact, it actually showed a pattern, if it was illustrative of a pattern, that's one thing. But it didn't. Because under the circumstances of the shootings, uh, they weren't premeditated. His decisions were made within nanoseconds. It has nothing to do with what he was saying to somebody else before. Period. I think the defense has done an outstanding job. Now in the last case, the individual who lived, who had his bicep shot, as you know, yesterday he wound up confirming that when his hands were down, Rittenhouse did not shoot him. But when he started lunging at him with his gun in his hand aimed at Rittenhouse's body, his head, that's when Rittenhouse shot. We have a serious problem with justice in this country, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to give you another case. A case that involves the President of the United States, Donald Trump, and many people who surround him. We have a federal district judge in the District of Columbia, like too many, quite frankly, who was appointed by Obama. This judge was appointed by Obama. And um, her name is Judge... Hold on, I'm on my iPhone here. Uh, Tanya Chutkin. And she has the typical left-wing credentials. And the core of her ruling was... Well, Donald Trump is not president anymore, and it's really not his responsibility to protect the executive branch from the legislative branch. That's the responsibility of the sitting president of the United States. And the sitting president of the United States has decided not not to argue executive privilege. Quite the contrary. He's decided that whatever documents the Congress wants, in this case, Nancy Pelosi's select committee of Politburo members, they can have. And so here she said you have the fusion of the executive branch and the legislative branch. And who is Donald Trump, an ex-president, to intervene? Because he doesn't want certain documents turned over. That's one of the stupidest arguments I've ever heard. First of all, just so you know, there is no definitive Supreme Court decision broad enough to, to use as precedent in this case. But I want to make a point to you. If Congress has the power to subpoena the presidential documents of a former president, they want texts and emails and documents at the National Archives and so forth and so on. Particularly a committee like this, where the 
Democrat Speaker of the House decided on who the Republican members were and rejected every single proposal by Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader. She decided who every member of this select committee would be, including the reprobates and over-Trumpers. But that aside, clearly, clearly you're protecting the executive branch when an ex-president asserts that he has the power, the authority to assert privilege over certain of the pieces of information being demanded by the House Democrats and these two reprobates. Because that information doesn't suddenly become available to Congress because we're talking about an ex-president. It doesn't suddenly become Congress's right to collect whatever they want, how much they want, from an ex-president of the United States by going into the archives and going after his official documents and electronic communications now that he's out of office. And this argument that Joe Biden is best positioned to determine how to protect the executive branch is preposterous. It's his party that's leading the charge in the House. Moreover, not that it will happen, but the fact is, at least now, Donald Trump is a potential competitor for him in the next election. I'm not arguing that Biden will run, but I'm making the point that what the judge said is is idiotic. So these political considerations are what the judge took into into consideration and not the Constitution and separation of powers. Joe Biden isn't going to assert executive privilege over these documents during the Trump presidency because he hates Trump. He's not going to assert executive privilege over the documents even if it means protecting the executive branch because Trump's in the other party and his party wants the documents. He's not going to assert executive privilege in this case Because at least he might be thinking he'll be running against Trump. And so whatever dirt can come out, whatever this this Stalinist committee can pull together and use against Trump and his administration, all the better. That is what's going on. This is the idea of justice. This would be the same president, Donald Trump who was the victim of the same Democrat Party, the same Obama-Biden administration, the Hillary Clinton campaign in this Russia collusion farce. It is the greatest fraud ever committed against the American people politically, ever. And the Democrat Party joined forces, the Democrat Party, join forces with the FBI, intelligence agencies, and even the Russians to try and destroy candidate Trump, President-elect Trump, and President Trump. It is my contention that Obama, Biden, the Attorney General of the United States back then, Comey, we know Brennan, and Clapper, knew, knew, that Hillary Clinton and her campaign were pushing for this Russia collusion issue. They knew. How do we know? Because last October, make that October 2020, Radcliffe, the then Director of National Intelligence, 
declassified and released documents that demonstrate it. That demonstrate it. So you had the Obama administration, Obama-Biden, the Hillary Clinton campaign, the FBI, the intel agencies, and of course our corrupt, corrupt media. Colluding, conspiring to do what? To destroy candidate Trump and then to destroy Trump. And they never, they never stopped. They were unrelenting. We had a criminal investigation triggered as a result of what Hillary Clinton and the Democrats did. And not a single syllable in this still dossier was factual. Their single source was this Russian expat, an analyst at the left-wing pro-Clinton Brookings Institute. That was the source. Everything else was a lie, and yet Comey, knowing it was a lie, that's my contention, goes, meets with Trump before he's sworn in, meets with Trump, and basically shows him what he has, Effectively blackmailing him, threatening him. And you wonder why Trump was furious? You wonder why he tweeted? You wonder why he fought back? There's no reason to wonder anymore. So when you hear people like Chris Christie at the Reagan Library or the Republican Jewish Coalition or other places trashing Trump or the likes of some backbencher reprobate Republican, a Bushy, a Cheney, or any of the others? Now you know where their heads are. By the way, isn't it amazing that you don't hear much from these never-Trumpers now that the entire Russia collusion farce and fraud is collapsing? You notice you don't hear them apologizing, you don't hear them saying anything. Same with the American media. The liars, the propagandists. And they're not returning any Pulitzer Prizes either, I notice. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Making your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. In Trump time, the Journal of America's Plague Year, Peter Navarro. This is a fantastic new book that just came out. Peter, how are you, my friend? 
Mark, I uh, can't be happy to be on your show tonight. I got to congratulate you. I'm, I'm calling you the Million Book Man. Forget about <laughs> the dollars. <laughs> and I'm rooting for you, by the way. There's a cameo of your book in my book in Trump Time. Um, and there's also a little story about uh, the guy you're, you're probably going to have to compete for for, for best seller of the year. I know you're going to win because Woodward, I show him actually in one of the scenes in the In Trump Time book where I'm actually there and he relies on uh, two anonymous sources, which do not equal a fact, by the way. And I show him to be the propagandist he is. So good, good for you, Mark. Um, Here's the good uh, news, quite, Peter. Quite an achievement. He's yeah. not even close. Not even close. His That's book beautiful. really overall That's was beautiful. a dud, and uh, so he'll be left behind in dust as he collects his millions. But I want to talk about your book because it's really a fascinating yes, book. I want to go right to this issue in the Situation Room with Fauci. This chapter two is fascinating. Fear, loathing, and St. Fauci in the Situation Room. Take us yeah. to the Situation Room. Yeah, it's great. So, so it's January 2020. It's January 28th. Uh, the president uh, has dispatched me to the Situation Room. He's already decided to tear, uh, pull down the flights from China, but he needs the support of this, this nascent task force, right? So I walk in there, Mark, and there's four guys I see there. I know I'm going to have trouble with. you got Mulvaney, the acting chief, at the end, end of the table. you got Pompeo's hack uh, on my left shoulder. I'm looking across, see if you get this, the Orville Redenbacher doppelganger. That's Redfield at the CDC and Asia, right? And they're all, for different reasons, they're, again, the travel ban. But there's this little guy across from me, little, little round glasses, didn't know he was a saint, didn't know he walked on water. And I'm in a violent argument with him within 60 seconds. And he's like Flaubert's parody. He keeps saying over and over again, travel bans don't work. And, and at one point, Mark, I, I look at him, I go, dude, I actually called him dude. I say, dude, it's like, I mean, if there's 20,000 Chinese nationals come in every day <clears throat> from Wuhan, China, and China into Kennedy, O'Hare, LAX, some of them lit up hotter than a Christmas tree with virus that you think it's best, come on in. And it's no, 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 no. And that was my first take. And, Mark, I looked him in the eye that day. Did, again, it's like I had no idea of, of who he was. And I thought to myself, he thinks he's smarter than he is, and he's going to hurt this president. But the bigger story that day, Mark, and in the in Trump Time book, was the lie of omission. Because I'm sitting there at that point in time. I knew that virus likely came from the lab. Uh, and what did Fauci know? He knew it was from Wuhan. He knew the virus popped up within yards of the lab, but here's what he knew, Mark, that he didn't tell us. This is the biggest lie of omission in history. He knew he had given money to that lab, American taxpayer money, to fund those gain-of-function research experiments Rand Paul talks about, which turn a harmless bat virus into a human killer. And what else did he know, Mark? A script scientist told him flat out, that that thing likely was genetically engineered. You put that all together, Mark, that little guy sitting across the table, what he should have done was gone right to the president, right to the task force, and said, look, I think this might be from the lab. I think it might be genetically engineered. And since we know that that's a bioweapons lab, moonlighting for the People's Liberation Army, it might even be a weapon. And I'll tell you, Mark, if that guy had told us then, right then, it would have changed everything. I, I, I could have run a strategy which would have saved millions of people worldwide just knowing that. Liable mission, Mark. One of the missions of the In Trump Time book 
is to get him out of government as the highest paid bureaucrat and put him right in a jail suit. Now, Peter Navarro, the race, the Operation Warp Speed, let me put it that way, that really was a remarkable event led by the President of the United States, Operation Warp Speed, and I don't think any other president could have done it. Explain. Am I right? You're absolutely right. And again, what I'm trying to do in the book is bridge this gap between what the fake news reported and what actually happened. So let me again take you into the White House like I try to do. And, and Mark, I should say that this book is actually based on a daily journal I did, mm-hmm. and not on recollection. I actually took the time going back to 2017. And so February 9th, 2020, at the president's request, he's He's on full alert on this pandemic. I write a memo that says the following. If we act today, that's February 9, 2020, we can have a vaccine by October or November. Mm. And that's exactly the mark we hit. And here's what's interesting. The way President Trump did it was we turned the sequential paradigm of vaccine development on its head. Usually, Mark, what you do is you start, you find some candidates, and then you take the laborious route through three phases of safety and efficacy trials. And only then will the pharma companies be willing to invest in mass production. And we said, no, 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 no. We're going to take that sequential process and, and, and make it simultaneous. Every single one of the companies, and in my memo, the, Moderna was there, uh, J&J was there, we said that, like, we're going to be ready to mass produce at least 150 million doses of every one of those possibilities. And if some of them didn't hit, that would be the best money that, that, that ever got, quote, wasted, mm-hmm. because at least we'd be ready. And so when this thing hit, um, we, we would be ready. And there's a, later in the – I'm into homages, and there's an homage to Perry Mason. It's the curious case of the delayed vaccine. February 9th, we write a memo. The boss says we can get a vaccine by October or November. We, we hit that mark. But here's what happened. A combination of Fauci, the CEO of Pfizer, uh, Albert Borla, and the, and, the, and the fake news media conspired to delay the vaccine before, so that Trump couldn't get a victory before mm-hmm. Election Day. In fact, the seeds of the whole vax hesitation began because of the actions, ironically, of those folks. And I calculate in the In Trump Time book, it wound up being delayed at least a month longer than it could have been available based on President Trump. Um, and that led to the loss of tens of thousands of lives if you, if you buy the idea that the vaccine works. Uh, and it certainly helps um, in many, many people, including those with comorbidities and senior citizens. So um, the, the situation, Mark, it, it's just... Like you and I know, politics is is a blood sport, right? It's it's brass knuckle stuff. But in the in the Trump time book, I make the point: look, when lives are at stake, particularly millions of lives, you play it straight. And CNN and Jeff Zucker and the New York Times, Fauci in particular, and I'm telling you, if if, if, if everybody reads this book, Fauci's going to wind up in jail because of everything he did, and it wasn't just what people know about now. It's that lie of omission I told you about and many other things in my showdowns with him. And he gives us some insight into the president himself. So here's what I'd like you to do for us. You worked with him very closely on a number of issues. Yes. yes. Tell the American people what he was like behind the scenes. I, I 
you know, I've gotten to know him very, very well, and they don't get a chance to see what the man was like. Tell me. Tell them. Some of the best times during the administration was in the Oval Office when I was with the trade team or with some other uh, members of the administration, just watching them effectively hold court on an issue that was critical either to the economic or national security of this country. And he's always extremely engaged. Now, what do I find him? I find him funny. I find him charming. At times he will interrupt somebody like almost immediately when they begin to speak because he can finish their thoughts before they can. He's, a lot of the chaos that people associate with him is really part of this, his, his four-dimensional chess game in terms of getting things done. And, and what endears me most about President Trump um, is how he treats just, we'll say, the common folk, right? I mean, he'll, he'll, he'll chew off the head of a Rex Tillerson, but he, he is always so thoughtful when it comes to just plain working people. And it was an honor for me to serve him. You know, I, I don't know if you know this, Mark, but I was only one of three White House officials who served with the president all the way from the campaign to the end. And I think the reason why I survived is every day I went in, I didn't care whether I had a job the next day, and I was, was, was truthful with him, whether, whether it was, was consistent with what everybody else was saying or not. And he, and he, he loves to hear uh, all points of view. He makes decisions tough. And I can tell you, Mark, this man, the whole time he was there, he worked harder than anybody I've ever seen. And he always was, was uh, thinking about the welfare of this country. I remember we went to Buenos Aires one time for one of those G20 meetings where we took on the Chinese. And I was like tip of the spear on the China tariffs and stuff like that. It was an epic throwdown with Xi Jinping, the Chinese communists. But like we come back on Air Force One, it's a, I don't know, it's like an 18-hour flight or something. He sat in his desk the whole time in a suit working. There's a bunch of us in his office there on the on uh, Air Force One, and one by one, everybody like dragged dragged their butt out and went to sleep. I stayed with him the whole night. It's the only time I've stayed up all night, and he was working for the people. That's the Donald Trump I know, and it, it, uh, I just he's the greatest president in modern history, and he's being followed by what what's shaping up to be the worst one, and and um, you don't know what you got till it's gone, my friend. And you saw how they tried to destroy him right out. He never had a honeymoon period, as they call it. And we now know, and we all knew, that the Russia collusion thing was a lie. And it appears it came out of uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign and the DNC and was promoted by, you know, their hack lawyers like Mark Elias and so And the media knew it. The FBI knew it. Yes. But they all conspired yes. against Trump. They tried to remove him, tried to destroy him early on. And then they wonder why he lashes out at them and has tweets. You know, it's a funny yeah. thing. I think if you and I were treated this way, we'd do a little bit more than tweet, wouldn't we? <laughs> we would. Let me tell you something about that Russia hoax thing. I did get into it in the In Trump Time book. That was a very crippling blow to Donald Trump and the administration early on because what, when, when they took out Mike Flynn, and it, it never should have happened, it set in motion of, of first where we wound up with McMaster – who was, was a globalist, never Trumper, that was not a good pick. But one of the things, and people, Mark, don't know this, traditionally when you come in, the National Security Advisor gets rid of all the detailees um, in the National Security Council, brings in a fat, fat, fresh batch loyal uh, to the agenda, right? 
when McMaster replaced Flynn because of that Russia hoax, McMaster didn't do that. And so we wound up with the Fiona Hills and the Vinmans and, and the, the Russia, Russia, Ukraine, Ukraine. Uh, and and they, they just, you know, you are what your record says you are, Belichick, football. Donald Trump compiled this beautiful record, not just on the economy, but North Korea, Iran, China, the border. Yet he could have been even greater um, if it, it weren't for these lily pushings like nipping at his ankles. And um, I admired his restraint sometime while people actually thought um, he, he uh, some of his tweets were, were over the top. It's like, wait a minute, they're, these people are just, they're just, they're just wrong. They're not, mm-hmm. they hate, as Corey Lewandowski once said, they, they hated Trump more than they loved the country. And, mm-hmm. and Corey was absolutely right about that. I agree. And the book is In Trump Time by Peter Navarro, a journal of America's plague year, folks. It is really a great book. Thank you, buddy. God bless. Have a wonderful right, holiday. Okay. Mark Levin. You're listening to the best of Mark Levin. number of things happening, ladies and gentlemen, that I want to make you aware of. The Biden administration wants to place on the Federal Communication Commission somebody who wants to destroy conservative talk radio. Somebody who wants to target the Fox News Channel. And here it is, the Wall Street Journal editorial, media censor for the FCC, question mark, nominee Gigi Son, that's G-I-G-I, last name S-O-H-N, wants more government control of the airwaves. I told you that these people are Marxists. When I worked in the Reagan administration, the push was for less government control of the airwaves. So you had a massive deregulation of the media. But, of course, under Biden, things work the other way. Negotiations over the multi-trillion dollar spending bill are consuming Washington. But Biden's effort to supercharge the regulatory state is also steadily advancing. The latest example is nomination of progressive partisan. I don't know why they can't call these people what they are. American Marxist Gigi Son, S-O-H-N, to the Federal Communications Commission. The White House last month held her as one of the nation's leading public advocates for open, affordable, and democratic communications networks. Translation. She favors deploying the agency's regulatory power to shackle broadband providers and silence conservative voices. San found the left-wing group Public Knowledge and has long sought more government control of the Internet and media. She was a counselor to Obama FCC chair, radical leftist Tom Wheeler, and was a driving force behind the so-called net neutrality regulation that classified broadband providers as common carriers under Title II of the Federal Communications Act of 1934. Now, the Wheeler rule banned broadband carriers from charging heavy bandwidth consuming websites like Netflix and Facebook more to carry their content. The enormous regulatory uncertainty caused broadband investment to decline, though it picked up after the Trump FCC scrapped the rule. But SON, S-O-H-N, supports making the Wheeler rule even more burdensome. She told the media site CNET last year, I'm not advocating for just reinstating old rules. We need to push for FCC authority 
to adopt policy to handle issues like zero rating and data caps. Marxists want the government to regulate broadband rates like electricity prices, and Sans musing suggests she be on board. She also hinted at deploying the agency's regulatory power to censor conservative media and revive a version of its mooted fairness doctrine. For all my concerns about Facebook, I believe that Fox News has had the most negative impact on our democracy, she tweeted last year. It's state-sponsored propaganda with few, if any, opposing views, quote-unquote. Ms. Sand seems to believe that the state is endorsing conservative speech by allowing cable companies to carry it. She also suggested using the FCC's power over broadcast licenses to censor conservative outlets. After Tribune Broadcasting abandoned its merge with the conservative-leaning Sinclair Broadcast Group in 2018, she declared, and I quote, Today is a good day for every American who believes that diversity of voices in the media is better for our democracy, and urged the federal government through the FCC to, quote, look at whether Sinclair's qualified to be a broadcast licensee at all, unquote. She could also use the agency's power to block mergers that expand conservative media's reach. Left-wing activists have petitioned the FCC to block the sale of a Spanish-language radio station in Miami to conservative-leaning America CV network, which Democratic Congress members suggest in a letter to the agency wasn't operating the quote-unquote public interest and might have propagated election misinformation. In other words, the American Marxists, their media, their Democrat Party, their bureaucrats, their would-be bureaucrats, want to control speech. They want to control the press, which they control 98% as it is. They want to snuff out Fox and OAN and Newsmax. They want to snuff out and undermine conservative talk radio. And this is the point of the spear. Gigi San, S-O-H-N. And her nomination is before the United States Senate next week. The FCC is currently split two to two. And if she's confirmed, Democrats will move quickly on the progressive agenda, a.k.a. Marx's agenda, Mr. Biden has also recommended Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel. Now, she's bad enough. She's a radical kook. But San, San is a nut job. Ms. San's strident partisanship would disqualify her from serving as an officer of an independent agency with so much power to control the public airwaves. There's also a risk that Biden could designate her as chair after she's confirmed, as he did with the radical Lina Khan on the Federal Trade Commission. The Senate Commerce Committee plans to hold a confirmation hearing for San next week. And senators of both parties need to ask her some tough questions. So ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, I would strongly encourage you to call Manchin's office and Cinema's office all over the country and tell them, of course, not to support the fundamental transformation of the greatest country in the face of the earth, being pushed by Sanders and AOC, any other Stalinists. By the way, the phrases I'm using now are ubiquitous on talk radio, so I want to thank the bank benches. Keep it up, baby. Keep it up. But ladies and gentlemen, they need to also be told that you want an objective, independent Federal Communications Commission and that G.G. Son, S-O-H-N, that Gigi San must be defeated. She must be defeated. 
She has no right to sit on the FCC and to use the authority like she's a Stalinist against free speech and freedom of the press. So you see the difference between a Reagan administration and a Biden and Obama. Reagan wanted to open up debate. He wanted to open up the exchange of ideas because that's what we believe in. That's what the founders believed in. But not the radical left in America, the American Marxists. The FCC is enormously powerful, ladies and gentlemen, enormously powerful. And if you like watching Fox or AON or Newsmax, or you like listening to this program and conservative talk radio, you best contact Manchin and Cinema, and make it abundantly clear that this radical extremist must be rejected. Because somebody in the Biden administration is trying to shut down free speech and freedom of communication. It's bad enough what's going on in this country with the New York Slimes and the Washington Compost, with the Constipated News Network and MSLSD, with CBS and ABC and NBC. It's bad enough that they refuse to even acknowledge that half or more of the country shares beliefs different than theirs. But this woman will unleash a war against speech. She's a censor. She'll unleash a war against cable programming that you like. She'll unleash a war against conservative talk radio. She must be defeated. She must be stopped. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. The Great One makes your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. This select committee looking at January 6th has all the markings of a Soviet-style get-even committee. Now, what do I mean by that? The way things used to work, ladies and gentlemen, is that whether it's the Soviet Union or Mao's China or whatever it is, Anybody who's in positions of authority, they set up these rump entities, all one-sided, gather information, cherry-pick from the information, and then declare a sentence. There's an ongoing criminal investigation relating to January 6th. The Attorney General of the United States said it is the biggest investigation they've ever conducted. Over 600 people have been charged with some form of a crime, including such horrific crimes as trespassing on capital property, which, of course, nobody's ever done before, particularly on the radical left. Now, people who are violent are charged for violent behavior. You don't attack police. But this was not an insurrection. And so this January 6th sort of Stalinist effort want you to believe it was an insurrection and they want you to believe it was led by Donald Trump and the people around him. This has taken a turn, a turn that one would expect when you consider who's on the committee and the two never-Trumpers on the committee who keep showing up on left-wing TV or with left-wing hosts. So this is breaking. The House Committee investigating the January 6th attack, but they're not really. 
on the Capitol issued subpoenas today for six close allies of former President Donald Trump. So you can see what's happening here. Former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn. Former Campaign Manager Bill Stepien. Former Senior Advisor Jason Miller. A foyer, a former lawyer uh, to, uh, to the President, John Eastman. And uh, I think there's another one in here. I think Bernie Carrick is another. Uh, let's see. National Executive Assistant on the campaign, Angela McCollum. I could be wrong about Bernie Carrick. I read that in one story, but I haven't seen it anywhere else. So let me pull that one back. Now, ladies and gentlemen, they're not investigating January 6th. They're not investigating the person who was in charge of securing the building, the Speaker of the House. They're not going to subpoena anything from her. They're taking their directions from her. This is yet again another setup, another Democrat operation using our tax dollars and creating the patina of an official House investigation. And I want to remind you that Nancy Pelosi refused to seat individuals that Kevin McCarthy had chosen to sit on the committee. She refused. And you can tell by what the committee chairman says, by what this reprobate Adam Kingsinger says, and of course Liz Cheney and others, what they publicly say. That there is no intention here other than to try and smear the former president of the United States. And you know it's interesting, no matter what any of them have said, no matter what any of them have written, there is no tie between any of that, whatever that is or may be, and what took place on January 6th. Nothing. In the House of Representatives, even with this rump, Stalinist-like select committee, has no jurisdiction or authority of any kind to conduct criminal investigations. They're not capable of it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? So they're going fishing. They want to find anything they can that might be embarrassing. President may be saying, isn't there anything we can do about this? Tell Pence XYZ. Look at that. He was trying to overthrow this, that, and the other. Right. Doesn't mean any of that. So this investigation, such as it is, isn't an investigation at all. It's another PR effort. Liz Cheney trying to survive. Adam Kingsley wants to run for higher office now that his congressional seat has been eliminated by the Democrats in the state legislature. And of course the Democrats doing the bidding of their uh, Eva Nancy Pelosi. Because that's what they do. That's what they do. And so it's amazing to me that there's no subpoenas about Nancy Pelosi, what she did the days before. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And there won't be any. And there won't be any. All right, I want to move on. The media in America are both racist and anti-Semitic, like much of the Democrat Party. It's unfortunate, but it's the truth. And when you embrace this American Marxism ideology, that's the nature of the beast. Michael Eric Dyson continues to show, on, uh, show up on MSNBC despite the fact that what comes out of his mouth is nothing but pure bigotry and hate 
and vile racism. It's constant. It's constant. And he's not the only one. Now, you may have heard some of this today, of course, but you didn't hear me talk about it yet. Why is he on MSNBC? Does he bring some profound intelligence or substance or wit? No. It's because he says some of the most disgusting, poisonous, cancerous things that can be said. They can be said. Now, Winsome Sears is the lieutenant governor-elect of the Commonwealth of Virginia. She's obviously black. She's obviously of Jamaican heritage. Her family came to the United States. They love this country. She became a naturalized citizen. She served in the United States Marine Corps. She started a small business. She's been in politics to some extent in Virginia. She runs for lieutenant governor, and she wins. And she's supported, not just by black and brown people, but an overwhelming number of white people. Therefore, she's a sellout. I've been talking to you about this now month after month, because in American Marxism, if you do not embrace Marxism in your minority, it is said... How many times have I said this? That your mind has been colonized, imperialized. That you're nothing but a, a black face promoting the white supremacy, white dominant agenda. I have said that day after day. This is what critical race theory is about. This is how it works. And that's exactly what they've tried to do to Winsome Sears. Never mind the fact that Terry McAuliffe defeated two black women to be the nominee of the Democrat Party for governor of Virginia. And so you can see the the ideological racism and the ideological Marxism has a home in the Democrat Party. It also has a home in the American media. It has a home in the American media. And this guy, Michael Eric Dyson, is a tenured professor. He should be fired. His ass should be thrown out on the curb and let him make his way instead of having a cushy job. But ask yourself, ask yourself if Michael Eric Dyson would even be allowed on the Fox News channel given his, his racist rants and attacks. No way. But not the same at MSNBC and CNN. Anything goes. Cut to go. They want credit for breathing. They want credit for having lungs. They want credit for having hair in the morning or getting up and brushing their teeth. Look, I've made an achievement that should be noteworthy. No, you are doing what uh, all political figures must do, make choices. The problem is here, they want, they want white supremacy by ventriloquist effect. There is a black mouth moving, but a white idea through the running on the runway of the tongue of a figure who justifies and legitimates uh, the white supremacist practices. Now listen to that one sentence. Media Matters should be talking about him, but they won't because they're on the same side of this battle. American Marxism. This man is a buffoon. He's a clown. Talks about ventriloquists. To say that about another human being who's accomplished, who's accomplished more than this clown has ever accomplished, I can tell you that. 
is really shocking. You see, it's never been about racism. He's attacking a black woman who's got all these magnificent credentials, and she just won an election in a hugely majority white state. And rather than even give her credit, she's a ventriloquist, you see, a black mouth with white supremacist thoughts and words. This isn't about racism, it's not about equality, it's not about equity. Coming out of Michael Eric Dyson's mouth. This is about his Marxist agenda, which is the whole point about critical race theory. Race is used instead of the proletarian bourgeoisie. It's white versus black, it's white versus people of color. And what Lieutenant Governor Lex Sears has demonstrated is they're wrong. She just got elected lieutenant governor, a female black person, first time in the history of the Commonwealth of Virginia, the South. This is why they hate the Industrial Revolution and capitalism, because the Industrial Revolution demonstrated that Marx was a fraud, that his ideology was thoroughly defective. Marx assumed the great proletariat would rise up and overthrow the bourgeoisie, but it didn't. It became wealthier. It became the wealthiest class, the middle class, the masses of any country on the face of the earth. And those people who are supposed to rise up and overthrow the government, they're the ones that fly the American flag. They're the ones who celebrate patriotically on certain holidays. They're the ones that go off to war to defend this country. Disproving Marxism in so many respects. So they hate the Industrial Revolution. They hate the men and the women who built this society. They hate success. They want redistribution of wealth. And as I've said over and over and over again, this, this model that they set up, oppressed and oppressor, you're now starting to hear it even in, from news outlets on Fox, which is a good thing, oppressed versus oppressor. It is a fraud, that model. It is a fraud. And so when you have clowns, clowns, Spin doctors, like this fool, Michael Eric Dyson, going around, spinning like a pretzel. American history and race and so forth. His goal, his goal is the same as all these others, which is to unravel this country. And in the meantime, get a lot of TV FaceTime, had people buy his books, be a professor. I think he's a preacher, too. Good God. Go ahead, Mr. Producer. That we can internalize in our own minds, in our own subconscious, in our own bodies, the very principles that are undoing us. He's not so even particularly smart. He didn't invent this. We've been talking about this for a while. He's just regurgitating it like a parrot. This is the essence of critical race theory. And Latcrit, by the way, Latino race theory, that these poor suckers, blacks, browns, yellows, whatever, who defend this society, who defend capitalism, who respect the country, who do not throw in 
with the reprobates, the miscreants, and the malcontents. These poor people, or as they would say, these poor bastards, just in their minds, in their subconscious, they've sold out. They've been sucked in. Go ahead. Blackface uh, speaking in behalf of a white supremacist legacy is nothing new. A white supremacist legacy, you see, critical race theory. The white supremacist, the white dominant society. So this clown is a CRT mouthpiece. And he goes on TV, and this is the crap that he pushes. I've got more. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. We're giving you nothing but the best, the best of Mark Levin. MSNBC and CNN, they must be proud of the conga line of racist, race baiters, bigots that they bring onto their programs. It's unbelievable. In my view, in my view, that's exactly what so many of these folks are. Regardless of race, by the way, MED, may I call you MED? I think I will. He goes on. Go grin of those of us who study race that the white folk on the other side and the right wingers on the other side don't understand this is politics one-on-one and this is race not even one-on-one what's beneath one-on-one it's the it's the pre-k of race you what should the hell understand. are you talking about you moron you say you study this issue you're mumbling and fun oh it's the pre-k it's not even the k it's 101 it's not even one what the hell are you talking about go ahead that if you tell black people, look, I support a Negro. Look, Nobody said, hey, black people, I support a Negro. Nobody said that. Nah, I mean, maybe the Democrats say that. Maybe they said that when they voted for Obama. I don't know. What do you think, M.E.D.? Should be M.A.D., but M.E.D., what do you think? I support a Negro. Go ahead color that I am in favor of, and that person of color... No, 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 no. So you study race. You don't study human beings. There's a lot to human beings other than race and pigmentation. Spirit, soul, heart, mind, interests, motivations, imperfections, and on and on and on. There's a lot more to one's life than their race. Except for you, because you study it. You're obsessed with it. And you're an ignoramus when it comes to it, despite all your studying. On the one hand, your suggestion is people voted for Lieutenant Governor-elect Sears because she's black. On the other hand, many people voted for it because they believe in what she said. And either way, according to you, it's racists. It's white supremacy. If you vote for somebody because they're black, you want what? You feel righteous. Meanwhile, if you vote for somebody, not because they're black, but because you agree with their views, well, you voted with a black person, according to you, who has a white mindset. You, sir, are a nut. A nut. Got it? A kook. Folks, we salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. Outstanding callers, each and every one. I want to thank you for participating. Thank you for listening. That's participating, too. We shall overcome, ladies and gentlemen. Be well and God bless.